Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Let not me speak, God, for my own understanding, but instead, Lord, by your Spirit, feed your people here in preparation for this season of Lent. Open up our hearts and our minds, God, to your word, and help us, God, to take what you have prepared, Jesus, and continue forward, growing and coming closer to you. Love you, Lord, and I thank you, and I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, good morning, Congregation <laughs> Church. Uh, so glad, truly, to be here with you all in the house of the Lord on this early afternoon. And so I want to kick off our time together by telling you about one of the things that honestly irritates me, in a sense, which uh, happens to be being assigned a nickname. So, you know, my friends, they, yeah, tend to call me Jeremiah because I've made it very much known that I don't like having a nickname. And for as long as I can remember, that's something that people have been adamantly trying to do. Whether it's been a teacher trying to shorten my name to JJ or my little sister when we were kids calling me Maya Maya. I don't really hold her for that one. She couldn't pronounce my name. <laughs> but somebody was consistently always trying to find a way to shorten my name. And you know, there's truly nothing inherently wrong with having a nickname. But to me, there was just something special about being called my full name. Amen. You know, it came off as, you know, having a bit more respect. You know, my name was considered one of the longer names in elementary school. And so when somebody could say Jeremiah fully, it just really showed me a bit of effort in terms of them trying. Mm. In my eyes, it just held more weight. And so it made me feel seen because truly it was essential to me because it was my name. And so, you know, church, I don't know if you guys ever had any complications with nicknames or if that was something that ever bothers you, but I'm sure we've all dealt with the issue of false identification. You know, whether it's come from others or whether it's been something within our own heart, we've all dealt with not knowing truly who we are. And our identity is kind of integral to everything. The way we view ourselves shapes so much of how we act and move along with truly how we seek after a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so in that, we have to begin to recognize the true identities we're supposed to have. Who does God say that we are? How do we live now that we're in Christ? And the question that the early church had to face, are we under the law or are we under grace? And so to answer those questions today, we're going to take time to go through Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 4, verse 7, so we could turn there in the Word. Analyzing two points that are going to be the framework for the sermon today is how self-given identities cannot sustain while God-given identities do. And so before we dive deep into the two parts for today, I want to give us a little bit of context to clarify what we're seeing in this passage and a bit of a basic understanding of the overall picture this passage is painting. So the church in Galatia, which is the church that Paul was writing to in Galatians, they were struggling a little bit, primarily because they were facing division and false teaching. As the church was growing, they had to deal with trying to understand whether or not they were still under the law. And in this region, there were some who were teaching that physical circumcision was a necessity for being made right with God. The church was wrestling with the idea that righteousness came through obedience to the law. But why is that something that the Apostle Paul would have had a problem with for the believers if the law had been given by God? 
What about holding on to the old law was so enticing to the Jewish believers who had come to know Christ? And the answer to that truly is that that is something that they have really based their identity in. You know, for the Jewish people, the law was the rule book that established the covenant between them and God. And time and time again, as the Israelite society had continued progressing, they had failed to uphold it, leading to them facing oppression, slavery, destruction at the hands of their enemies. So after returning from their last stint of occupation under the Babylonian Empire, the Israelites are like, all right, you know, we don't want to mess up anymore. Like, we're going to try and get right. And so in that they really tried to go back to the law, but failed through establishing so many other traditional practices surrounding the law that they missed the true point again of why the law had been given. In their eyes, they were now trying so hard to uphold these rules and regulations and traditions, believing that it would now establish them as true children of Abraham through their diligent adherence to these rules. But they truly couldn't have been more wrong if they had tried. Um, the Jewish people had missed the point of the law. And Paul, in the wisdom that God had given to him now as the apostle to the Gentiles, breaks down the true meaning of the law and the role Jesus played in fulfilling it. Now, as Paul stated in Galatians chapter 3, the law had purpose. God, in all of his wisdom and glory, didn't give it without reason. And verse 23 reads that we are held captive under the law, expanded upon in verse 24, and that the law was our guardian until Christ came. So the law was God's way of revealing to us that which was sin and what was not. But also in that, how is it a guardian unto the Israelite people? You know, the uh, Oxford Dictionary defines a guardian as a person who looks after and is legally responsible for someone who is unable to manage their own affairs. Mm. So as a call of the law, a guardian indicates that the law kept the Israelite people in line because they could not yet do it themselves. It was never meant to be a symbol of status nor salvation. And it was never meant to make one right with God, mainly because if you look at it, there is no way you as a man would ever be able to fulfill it. So no, the law was never meant to make one righteous, which points to why this false teaching was so detrimental to the early church. It was placing people back underneath the curse of God and disregarding the purpose of which it had been given to be a guardian until Christ came. And so what Paul is really trying to reiterate to the early church is that justification never came through keeping the law, but instead through faith in Christ. Jesus was the only one who fulfilled the law perfectly. The Son of God, as verses 4 through 5 in chapter 4 read, he was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the saving plan of God. And when we put our faith in him, we are no longer stand underneath the curse of disobeying the law and being held captive by our sins, but are now justified through our faith in what Christ did for us. And so now in Christ, true identity and unity can be found. Now, church, don't misunderstand me. Circumcision truly was a command given to the Israelite people by God for the sake of identifying them as his and illustrating their faith in him. You know, he gave this command to separate them from the other pagan groups that had surrounded them and to keep this decree and kept this decree to the degree that he literally almost killed Moses when Moses was returning to Egypt to free the Israelites since he had not even yet circumcised his own children. Taking all that into account, the weight and high regard placed on circumcision was very understandable, true, before the Jewish community. But what they kept missing was that it was no longer applicable underneath the light of Christ. 
Placing salvation in a work such as circumcision was a foolish, manly thing to do, and the understanding that Christ had come to save us through his death, indicating that this practice for these false teachers was no longer just a call to obedience, but instead was being used as a way to run back to something that was a place of safety for them and their identity. They were still trying to use this act of circumcision as an act of being set apart, as an act of clarifying where they stood, contrary to those who were not circumcised. But in Christ, this is not the way the Lord was deeming for us to be set apart. For the Lord to think that he desired to make us different from those around us is truly how we love one another. And so we see that the false teachers were not longing in this teaching for a God-given identity, but instead were seeking one of their own making, still trying to cling onto their false sense of a works-based righteousness. For what good is this act if it does not lead you to self-control and humility, to gentleness and to goodness, to kindness and patience? What good is that act if it does not lead you to love God and to love others as you love yourself? And so the claim given and the point that Paul argues is that a self-given identity will not save you. The Jews wanted so badly for their old traditions and customs to still be the basis for how they viewed themselves and my brothers and sisters, at times we end up doing the same thing. You know, we desire to find comfort, purpose, safety, strength, and in some way salvation in the ways that we decide to identify ourselves, in the career paths that we take, in the sexual orientation that we have, in our own ethnic identity. We aim to take these things, twist them in the way that the Jews did with the law and place our sanctity and purpose in them. But the only thing that leads to true righteousness, that leads to true love and purpose, is putting on Christ. Believing in him, being baptized in his name, walking according to his ways, that is what illustrates true righteousness. And in that, there is no division. In Christ, your career is given weight. Your ethnic identity is reconciled. Your sexual desires are redeemed and clarified. For as Paul said in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And then continuing in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so in this understanding, church, believers are given the right identity, a God-given identity. You are no longer a slave in the house of the Lord, held captive and under management by the law. But we are now heirs with Christ, adopted into the family of God and truly Abraham's offspring. And to be children of Abraham, a true child of the promise given to him, has little to do with lineage, but instead with your faith. The reason Abraham is treasured, while he is called a father of the faith, and that was not based in genealogy, but because of his faith in God. His faith that God would keep his promises, steer him in the right direction, and make his path straight. For the Jewish people, as we see with the dissenters in this passage, and as we sometimes see within our own lives, still have their eyes closed to what it truly meant to be a child of God, to be an heir of the Most High. They weren't recognizing that all people are held captive by the law. That we're all slaves to sin and not permanent members of the family of God, except when we are in Christ. 
Because when we're in Christ, we become a son. A son as part of the family forever. And now under Christ, we might receive adoption as sons. Yeah. We're named heirs with the spirit of the Most High God now living within us. Because, church, that was the Son's purpose, was to set us free. And so for those who are in Christ, we are set free forever. And so praise God that in his mercy, he did not see it fit to leave us captive to our sins. He did not deem it necessary to leave us in the grave to forsake us to eternal damnation. But instead, he sent his only begotten son. That for those who turn to believe in him, that they might have eternal life and are no longer counted as illegitimate children, but as sons. And if sons, then heirs through God. And so, church, how do we move in this true identity? You know, how do we continue pressing forward with the spirit living within us? You know, is it in a nonchalant way, continuing to just live our lives in the same way that the world does? Continuing to still seek after our own desires as if the identity of being an heir of God holds no weight. No, church. You are a beloved child. Bought back by the blood of God. And so in that you are a son of the almighty, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He whose throne will last forever. He who at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is who you belong to in Christ. And so live not as this world lives, but instead live a life worthy of that calling. Your life is not your own. Presents it unto the Lord as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in his sight. For that is a true way that you can worship. Live not in a way that conforms to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Aim to be like Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, clothing yourself daily with the love that comes from God. So I want to end with a call for us today. You know, ask the Lord truly to search your heart. Where have you been basing your identity in that which is not of Christ? Where are you trusting more in yourself than in our Heavenly Father? And what can you do to let go of a self-given identity and walk in the one that God wants to bestow upon you? Amen. Amen. Amen.